Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show accountant, revered photographer, and the man who did the latest Metallica album photography, Lee Jeffries. So we discuss a host of topics, from Lee's childhood mentor that led him into the world of accounting, a chance meeting with a homeless woman in London that became the genesis of his photography career, his experience with homelessness around the globe, finding that soul connection with people he photographs, his own mental health journey, how he ended up working with one of the greatest rock bands of our era, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Lee Jeffries. Enjoy. Well, Lee, I want to start by saying, firstly, congratulations on the incredible success that your work is having at the moment. And secondly, to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor for you to ask me to do this. I've noticed the podcast and I've been waiting for the invite for, <laughs> for a long time and it eventually came. So, yeah, I mean, the work... The work that I do has gradually been it's slowly taking a path, a trajectory upwards for about 15 years now. And suddenly it's just exploded. The last couple of years have just, have just been crazy. So everything's good and I'm, I'm really happy and uh, I'm just happy to do the podcast with you. Beautiful. Now, for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I live in, I was born in Bolton in Greater Manchester, and I still live in Bolton in Greater Manchester. So before I even get into your life journey, for people listening that don't follow football, soccer, football is what it's supposed to be called, um, you guys just had the most epic FA Cup in your city because it was Man City and Man United. So how did that pan out being in Manchester? Well, the thing about being in Manchester is I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan. I've always been a Liverpool fan. <laughs> Do you need me to edit uh, this out? <laughs> uh, no, that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm so I'm happy to be a Liverpool fan. I've been I was a Liverpool fan when I was five years old, and my dad took me to the first game at Anfield. We went to watch. I remember it vividly. We went to watch West Brom and Cyril Regis. I don't really remember him. I do actually. Yeah. Yeah, he was playing, and I always remember it. it was just a, oh, just a really good experience. And yeah, I've been a Liverpool fan ever since. So the the, the FA Cup final really didn't make any difference to me. I I did watch it, but I know I think I was willing City to win secretly, and they did. Were there any negative impacts up when I was young? I actually never really had a team, and it was partly because when we were little. 
you know, dudes would murder each other over 11 men in short shorts. So it wasn't really something that dragged me towards the sport specifically. But now you have this derby between two teams from the same city. Was there any uh, negativity, violence, or was it well received by everyone? No, I think it was well received by everyone. I don't think there was any violence. I don't think there was any... I mean, there's just been one thing on the news with uh, there's a guy who wore a shirt. I think, the is it the 90, 97 people died at... Uh, oh, the Hillsborough? The yeah, the Liverpool fans. And he wore a shirt that said 97 and it said, over the top, not enough. So that's caused a big stink in the UK at the minute. And uh, he, he got arrested for, for doing that, so... Good, it's a good job as well. Yeah, you can't go around wearing a shirt like that. No, no, exactly. All right. Well, then you mentioned about being born in Bolton, so let's start at the very beginning then. So tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Okay, I have. I'll, I'll start. My parents divorced when I was eight, and that's probably shaped my view on. On my whole life, looking back, it did it, 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 it messed me up completely. Uh, so my dad just worked for British Aerospace, uh, making aeroplanes and bombs and whatever you, whatever they used to make. My mum didn't work, so when my parents divorced, I ended up with mum in a council estate in Bolton, and you know it was. Practically, till till I went to university, I lived in that council house 10 years. So my childhood was really based on, uh, it was to see him on a Saturday and then back to, back to mum's for the week and then the following week, Saturday, maybe I'd stay over. And it was that toing and froing, it was that destabilisation as a kid, looking back now, that it's kind of led to what I've, I've been doing. It's been one reason why I do what I do when I go out on the street and, and photography has been my outlet with the homeless shots. But yeah, it, it, it led to, you know, I'd, I'd get back from my dad's and all I'd do would be cry to be with my dad because I was with my mum. And when I was with my mum and I had to go to my dad's, it was destabilising and it was upsetting to leave my mum. Uh, so yeah, it was really, it was really, it, it, it took its toll and it, it's took its toll on the relationships as well that I have with them now, I'm very distant from them. Uh, we, as a family, we, we're not, we're not tight in any way. I have a twin brother, identical, looks <laughs> just like me, uh, unfortunately for him, uh, <laughs> he's a firefighter. Really? Yeah, so he's been a firefighter since he was 18, just retired. So he did 30-odd 30, 30, 30 years, 35 years or something in the service and just retired about three months ago. So, well, yeah. Well, you have this, and we'll get into it, obviously this lens on personal mental health, on the mental health of some of the women that you see on the streets have you had any conversations about the impact of the job on your brother's you know, life path? I don't think my brother thinks that deeply. 
I think the way the way that the job has imp- impacted him him is he's become a lot more compassionate as well. I've never talked to him about it, but I can see the things that he does. He does a lot of things for the community. Uh, he'll go and he does gardening for the for the local council, free of charge. Uh, he's raised a lot of money for help for heroes, mm-hmm. wounded soldiers. Yeah. So he runs golf golf events and uh, he raises a lot of money. I think he's raised two or three million pounds over the course of what he over the course of while he's been doing it, probably more. Uh, but the job in terms of having a conversation, sitting down with him and having a conversation on and saying, Stacy, you know, whoa, what did the job? He, he would only ever say to me that he'd go out on shouts and he would never talk about it. He said, Lee, I've seen some some stuff that you just just wouldn't want. I wouldn't want anyone to see in the life. And I think that was the extent of it. He kind of kept it bottled up. And uh, I think his avenue, his release now is to is to help, just to help a bit where he can. I guess we've got that, I guess we've got that thing running through both of us in in some degree. But his his driving force, I guess, was, was his job. And my driving force is my sense of loneliness, which I'll probably go on to explain. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it'd be interesting if he, he listens to this interview as well, if this maybe opens some doors for his, you know, his journey into you know, dealing with some of the things that he that he's seen, because we we obviously can't just break down and burst into tears when we're on this scene. But a human being is not meant to just keep these images to themselves and stuff it down as well. So it may be that he's just got some great, great coping mechanisms like gardening, for example. You're out in you know, the fresh air, you're getting soil under your fingernails. I mean, that's a very, very therapeutic thing. So it may be that he's found things that work for him. But I'd be intrigued mm-hmm. to circle around after a few months and see if he listened to this and found some value in other episodes of the podcast as well. I'll definitely point him in the direction and we'll see what he, see what he does. Maybe he'll give you a call and say... James, can I have an interview? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the open door. I say that right now. All right. Well, then with that, so you, you know, you're bouncing back and forth, and that was actually when I went through my divorce. I grieved the impact it would have on my son. I kind of knew that my marriage was done. My uh, my ex had clearly, through her actions, demonstrated that she was not into the the marriage anymore. Um, but the anticipation of that household a household thing, you know, it really, really tore my heart out of my chest and it's you know i've spent the whole rest of my life trying to make sure it was as stable as possible so when you look back at that you talked about that were there any other elements of that upbringing or even where you were living in the council estate that were also traumatic when you look back i don't think the the council estate was necessarily necessarily traumatic i think that i think i'm if I was to say anything about living on a council estate, it it, it humbles you. It, it, you. You know, I've I've been back numerous times over, particularly over the last couple of years. I just go go around in the car, sit there, and just look at the house that I used to live in, and I I just sit there with music in the car, and I think to myself all sorts of things. How the hell did we all fit in there? You know, me, my mum, uh, and my brother, and it was like a two bedroom terrorist council house in the middle of this massive council estate how did we fit in there the times where we'd just play headers and volleys outside against the garages 
you know, just whacking a ball against a, a steel garage door, then the noise it would make. Uh, how my mum coped on her own. As a dad now, I know how difficult it is to, to bring a child, bring a child up with love and uh, everything that a child needs. Uh, and it must have been particularly difficult for her with no job, on a council estate, and no prospects really. There's no hope. The hope, I guess, was me and me and my brother me and my brother. So yeah, it was it's difficult to go back and look at various things, but then like I say, it it really is it was a defining period of my life. It's made me appreciate everything that I've worked hard to get. And because uh, I'm still, you know, I still work full time. I'm still a full time accountant. You might think that Lee Jeffers is this this famous photographer, but he still does tax returns for clients, and he still does accounts that need submitting. And you know, that's my full time job. That's what I work for in my career. Uh, but yeah, it, it 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 is kind of strange to go back and just relive those moments because when you're a kid you're filled with a sense of there's it's a wide world everything is open to you you have no sense of uh duty no sense of uh what's the word i guess the world is your oyster and there's a there's a there's a light, there's a hope. Uh and whilst you might not appreciate it at the time, looking back, oh man, to go back and live those days again. I mean, it's an old cliche, isn't it? To, if I could just go back and be a kid again, but oh, it would just be it's just the best time of your life. Yes, we had no money. Yes, we lived in a council house. Yes, uh my mum didn't allow me to drive a car because that was the only one she had. And I, I had to wait until I was 21 to drive. And all those things that I didn't have as, you know, if I didn't have that situation, all the good things that I had, you know, I, I lived a normal, normal life other than the uh, emotional upheaval. And the emotional upheaval still bothers me to, till today. I have a recurring dream. I have two recurring dreams. One is that my parents will get back together and I still have that dream, you know, frequently. And I wake up and think, oh, they'll get back together. <laughs> and it's never happening. Uh, and the other one is that my granddad never got sick. My grandfather was the rock of my childhood. So we, it was... We used to go down, me and my brother, we'd be put on the train in Manchester and we'd go down to see him and my grand grandmother in Reading, in Berkshire. So they would be at the Reading train station meeting us. We, this is like two 10-year-old kids on a train. Wouldn't dream of it now, but then it was it was okay to do. So we just used to go down and spend two weeks, three weeks with my grandparents and go fishing on the Thames and... Yeah, my grand and grandfather would used to light fires in the garden. And now, you know, when I'm when I'm out running or I I just catch catch the scent of burning wood. 
it just he comes back to me instantly. It's like he's here. It's just he's, he's here with me. So yeah, it's uh, just memories from childhood like that are just a, a beautiful things when you get to fifty two years old to look back on and appreciate, and to be in a, a state of mind where you can appreciate them. I think it's very. I'm fortunate to to be able to be able to uh, contemplate things like that. Not many people are afforded that time and luxury to really look back and look at the good things. I was walking my dog this morning and I've been jumping back into meditation the last few days, trying to get, create space for this book that I'm writing. And I was walking along and I caught myself with those kind of monkey mind thoughts, you know, the to-do list that bounced around between your ears. And I kind of took a moment and just try to go back to that meditation state that I'd been in, you know, an hour prior. And I, I had this epiphany. I'm like, this is a difference between a 49-year-old former firefighter and a nine-year-old little boy walking around the farm I grew up in is you didn't have those thoughts bouncing around your head. You could be mm -hmm. present. You could smell the air. You could smell the fire. You could see, you know, the nature. You, you know, you fall over and feel every graze and you know and now we're so preoccupied and then you add in technology it makes it even worse that one of the things i yearn for as a child is to just have that clear mind where you actually are present in the moment and it's so hard you know with a with a career's worth of stuff to to start chipping away and getting back to that to that excuse me you'll never get there fully but a version of that at 49 where you can just sit and you're not thinking about the next thing and you can just be present. Um, I think that's one of the things that I've chased for a long time and it kind of hit me today what that thing was. I think that in terms of what you're saying there, I think that photographer, photography for me is that is that space, is that place where I'm, I'm 10 years old again and anything can happen. I can be walking through the streets of New York, turn a corner and just something magical happens uh i'll tell you a story i mean i was in new york uh and i was just I was just doing some street photography and i was it's in the book it's in my book actually and i was just walking towards washington square park and as i'm walking through washington square park i turn the corner and i see this guy sat under this huge tree and i thought he looks so familiar and as I'm approaching, it's dawning on me. This is this is Andy. This is the guy that I photographed five years ago in Miami outside of Starbucks. So as I'm walking closer and closer, it is Andy. It is, it's him. And it's those moments that when you in photography that suddenly it, it opens that 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 sense, that sense of space, that sense of unpredictability that sense of uh light and hope that you you have when you were a kid when the, nothing else is interfering and nothing else was interfering with that moment i shouted andy and he just took one look up and shouted lee jeffries out of the confusion and all the the trouble that he was experiencing and his own homelessness he remembered my name 
And it still gives me chills to think about that. And, you know, it's the moments like that that seem to happen to me frequently. And I don't know why they happen. I guess I'm open to them happening. I mean, that might help a little bit, but it's these moments and the photographs that I take are really, is it serendipity? Is it, is it, just pure luck is it destiny i don't know but you know in terms of what you were saying and that that sense of trying to get back to somewhere where you were as a kid photography has given me that that way to get there i'm never happier than when i'm out on the street and yeah i go in homeless areas and it stinks and there's there's Feces and there's uh, there's urine smelling streets and there's the smell of uh, uh, drugs and squalor, but I love those smells. I love being around those smells. I love the people. I love the connections. I love the vibe. I love the excitement of the place, and I love the fact that I can connect with another human being on a a deeply human level like I connected with Andy but we'll go into that I guess a bit later but that was just my 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 way of saying you know what uh, agreeing with what you said James no but that's a great story especially you know when you see Andy again on the other side of the the continent basically it's just phenomenal yeah I mean I, to, to photograph him in Miami and then to see him again in New York and I'd not seen him for five years and obviously we'd had no contact it was completely all the people in New York, I would, I would see it would be him. Amazing. Well, going back to your youth, when you look back now, were was photography or were there other areas of art that you felt felt never. kind of no? Never, never. When I used to go to see my grandparents, my uncle lived in uh, a place called Datchet, uh, which is just outside of Windsor, and he was an accountant. He had his own accountancy practice and from an early age i just wanted to be my uncle it was uh, he had a lifestyle he would have he would have mega parties the parties he would have in his garden in the summer and you know big jugs of pims would be on the table and uh, you know i'm only 12 and i'm having a pims it was he was the coolest uncle you could ever imagine uh so yeah i just wanted that lifestyle which is why i drifted into accountancy it was yeah are we the product of our childhood this is this is the metallica thing this is the 72 seasons this is you know through the first 18 years of our lives define us and it certainly defined me uh in terms of the the divorce in terms of my career path uh so yeah it's uh i guess it's it, it's it, it is a defining period of your life and uh i think it's uh really affected the way i view things so initially you enter the world of accounting prior to that kind of pivotal moment where you, you, you know, began the journey on photography and, and the homeless population specifically, what were those first few years like? Were, were you 
satisfied? Were you happy? Did you start noticing any any of the the traumas from when you were younger kind of showing their face at that point? No, it was when I first started photography, it was really, uh, I'm a keen cyclist and always been a keen cyclist and I had my own cycling business and I had to shoot product product, uh, images to sell them, obviously. And the more I shot these product images, the more I wanted to get a bit more artistic with them. I think this is where the artistry came from. And we used to, there was, a, there was a bunch of guys that used to be on a on a website and it was like a forum thing. And we used to like have competitions on who could take the best shot of the cycle of the bike for a start and the cycling components. So I think it really that's the real really the way it's it started out. And that ignited the sense of artistry in what I did. So it was shooting bicycle stuff and then it turned into street photography. The fam- There's a famous story where I was in London to run the marathon. I, I, I've done a lot of running of marathons and cycling and uh, all over Europe. And so I was in London, London to run the marathon and I, I was just about the day before Saturday, the Saturday before the Sunday race, I'd just been to collect my uh, number. And I had my camera with me and I it, it had a big 200 millimeter lens and I was just walking around and just trying to just do some street photography. I, I'd never really thought about street photography before, but I thought I'd take the camera out and try and do some. And then I see this young homeless girl. She's in a sleeping bag, blue, blue and red sleeping bag. Never forget the colors. And her eyes were crystal blue. And I could see them across the street and it just it just that moment where I, her eyes met my eyes it it's what i call a moment of instant recognition she noticed me and i noticed her but what, what i did do was i lifted the camera to take a picture that was my first mistake hitting the shutter was my second and then continuing to do that was mistake after mistake after mistake because she kicked off she shouted screamed at me i had all the people that were i mean this is near leicester square so i had all people i mean this is packed so i had people looking at me and i mean telling me that you know what are you doing what are you doing and it was embarrassing and i had uh the choice i had a choice i would i just get out of there completely or would i go and talk to her it was so easy just to run away, but I didn't. I went over and sat with her and, and just had a conversation. And we started to talk and it, she, she was 18. She'd been kicked out of home. She'd been homeless a few months. And uh, we just talked. I don't even remember what we talked about now, uh, but it was, it lasted a long time. And the impression and and the impression she left on me really dictated the future path that I would take. It would it would never be a shot from across the street if I was going to do any kind of portrait photography. I wasn't even sure I wanted to do portrait photography. It was just it was just a, an event in a whole series of events that have happened to me that have conspired to make the whole thing who Lee Jeffries is now. So yeah, uh, she eventually let me take a photo and it's 
it's the, the photo of the girl in the sleeping bag, which is one of my, it's my first homeless image. And it's, uh, I think that changed the path from suddenly doing, well, not suddenly, but taking pictures of my bike and my bicycle parts to photographing people. And it, it, it just switched something on in my head that, that, that basically for, for most of my life it was it was all about me it was it was never about anybody else I'd never really listened to anybody else's story I hadn't had no sense of compassion whatsoever whatsoever but listening to her listening to I mean 18 on the street of London and here's me I'm yes I've I've had a, a relatively tough childhood compared to others but nothing to, to that extent and i fell for her and it hit me it hit me really hard so that was the first experience but the way it developed was really it's quite personal and it's probably a story that not many people would want to tell but i met somebody was a long distance relationship. So as I'm going through this process of artistic uh, development, I'm looking online. I'm I'm looking for inspiration. I'm looking for photographers. I'm like, what do they do? How can I make it better? Just like people come to me now and ask me questions. What lens do you use? What's your setup? And just the usual questions. I was asking those questions you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I approached uh, a woman in, in LA, just outside of LA, and we got talking and we we created quite a rapport. Anyway, this went on for months and months and we, we ended up uh, meeting in London. By the time we met, we were totally in love with each other. It was, it was, it was a kind of love where you would uh, do anything, go anywhere, just for her. I, I would at the drop of a hat, it would just be for her. So we met in London. The relationship continued, and, and during the it continued for about another six months, and then her mother got sick, and it was terminal, and she she was a, a devout Catholic, never been anywhere near Rome and I, had, I hadn't been to Rome at that stage and she was desperate to go to Rome before she died and it was just not going to happen she was so sick so I suggested that I go for her and I to go to Rome to have to get a rosary to buy a rosary in the Vatican and have it blessed which is what I did so I, I took myself off to Rome uh I remember getting this this rosary. Well, I was I was late to the Vatican, so the Vatican was, was just about to close. And the, the, there's a shop in the in the place where you can actually buy these rosaries. And I remember running through the. I had to go all the way through the Vatican to get to the shop at the end. I remember running through the corridors trying to make it before before they closed. And I got to the shop and I was just, I just burst out into tears 
and I was exp- I explained to the woman what I was doing, and she she put her arm around me, and then she she got me this rosary, and we got we got it. I paid for it, and then she she arranged for a priest to come and bless the rosary, which, which he did, and then I, I then sent that to the states for this this lady's mother, who was then you know, buried with the rosary when she passed. So it was that that experience in Rome that uh, what I'm trying to get at is, I guess, it was my first time in Rome and that's heavily influenced that whole experience was the first time I did something for anybody else without thinking of myself. It was my first time in Rome so as I'm running through the corridors of the Vatican, I'm just being bombarded with painting and frescoes and all kinds of beautiful art, which I'd never experienced before in my life. And it really uh, ignited, it just took that artistry development to the next level. And when I was in Rome, I shot, I shot an image and it's become my signature image because of that experience. And it's the woman that, that prays and it embodies not only the vibe of Rome, but it's so special to me for though, for that personal reason why I was there. So that's the story behind that shot. So if anybody asks me, I never really go into, everyone's going to hear it now, but the, the, the story is, behind the trust ever, behind that image is, is the fact that I was there for somebody else. And the fact that someone upstairs must have given that moment to me as a reward or some kind of personal recognition because it was completely on the fly. It was just a, a complete quick turnaround and she was there. It was almost, it wasn't set up. It wasn't, it was just a pure, pure street moment. And, the way the light falls and it's just it just embodies everything about that trip and everything about the city that the that I feel about Rome and Italy itself. Italy is is the biggest inspiration for what I do. So every image I've done subsequently, every single homeless image, every single metallic image has an element of Trastevere interweaved in, in into the image. There's always a piece of trust ever in everything I've done since. So the relationship carried on and it was a long distance relationship and it would lead to uh, insane periods of loneliness when I wasn't with her. All I wanted to do was be with her, but I was in the UK. She was in the States. Uh, You know, it was just not so it would drive me insane, that sense of loneliness. And for some reason, I'd go out on the street and I'd just walk on the street. And every every street that I went down, I would hope to turn a corner and see her eyes. And I never did. But what I did do was I was looking into strangers' eyes, looking for her. And it's... And that's the motivating factor, and that and it drove me out even more. So, I'd go out one day in Manchester, say, 
and I'd turn a corner and I'd be looking for, I'd go to London and I'd turn different corners, just where places we'd been. I'd go back to places where we'd been and then look and just deeply look in strangers' eyes, trying to see her. But the more I did that, the more I didn't see her, the more I saw the people that I'm looking at and I saw their sense of loneliness and I felt their pain. And it's something, like I said before, it's, it's a moment of instant recognition. I, this is what I call it. I don't know whether it's the right name, but this is, this is the name that I've come to term, whatever I'm feeling. So it's that moment of instant recognition that my photograph is always about. It takes a relationship to get back to that moment of instant recognition, if that makes any sense. No, it does. So I'm 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 going down the street. I'm 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 looking into strangers' eyes, but I'm not just glancing. I'm really, really looking into strangers' eyes, and I'm absorbing what what those eyes are telling me because eyes are the most communicative thing that you can a human being has. And if you look deeply into someone's eyes, they tell you everything you need to know. And when I go in these homeless areas, uh, it would. I would feel their loneliness just like I felt my own. And that would be the spark for a conversation. That would be the, the ignition for me moving forward instead of moving away. Now, a lot of people try and take pictures of homeless people. They're, I mean, they have a soft target. I mean, it's just, and they do it to take a photograph. I'm not there to take a photograph. Slightly selfish reasons to leave it to, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of there to alleviate my own sense of loneliness. But I don't think there's anything wrong in, in the pureness of that. There's a, there's a, two people with that same, same feeling connecting is a beautiful thing. And the images that I've produced and the relationships that I've developed are uh, a testament to that. So, yeah, I mean, the more I did it, the more connections I made, the more relationships developed. And these, I was falling in love with these people. My own state of mind was, I'm so lonely, I'm so open to a relationship that when I did create a relationship, I would, I would fall in love. It was, and there's been... Margot in, in Miami, for example, I mean, I'm, I'm just sat on the curb. I've been walking around Overtown in Miami for about five hours, just walking around. Just, And when I go into these areas, I'm, I'm accepted because I become part of the community. I'm not there to, you know, take the piss or I'm, I'm there to, to help if I can, and which I do. I'm there to offer a, a conversation. I'm there to just be there. And these people recognize that to the point where it's, hey, Lee, a shout across the street, you're here again? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm here again. It's a good role. I mean, I'll never forget that. Guy shouts, hey, Lee, you're here again? I said, yeah. He said, good for you. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in Miami. I'm sat on the curb and I look up and it's Margot stood above me and full hooker mode. So she had a uh, a leopard skin fur coat on, high heels, short skirt. And I was 
I was like, whoa, I'm very, very uh, surprised because I was just taking a break. And we started to talk and she explained who she was. She was, she explained that, you know, she'd been on, on the streets as a prostitute for a number of years. And back in the day, she was uh, a very famous, huge porn star. And I, it didn't mean anything to me, but uh, we created this relationship. And she invited me back to, to her place, which was like a six foot by five foot garage that was just annexed to a, a derelict house. And in there, she lived with, I think, four or five girls, all doing the same thing she was. And it was just like, just mattresses laid on the floor in this garage. Total problem with addiction. Uh, all the girls had problems with addiction, uh, and but that that's not something that I'm judgmental about. I, you know, if, if if these girls are addicted, they're addicted. I'm not there to to make any kind of moral judgment over them. I'm just there to 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 be with Margot, to enjoy her company, and tell her story. And we connected to the point where I felt something deeply for her. I know she felt something deeply for me. And it was, we, we fell in love. We could never, I'd, I'd never crossed the line. I'd never, because my life is such that I just wouldn't do that, but it doesn't stop you having feelings for another human being. So when I say I fall in love with these people, I really do. I connect on a, a really human level. And it was so upsetting because Margot, she she was she was the one in Overtown that looked after everybody. She was the she was the woman that all the other girls. She was like the mother figure. She would she would take care of them. So if there's any problems, Margot would be the one to to go to. Uh, and Florence Nightingale of Overtown, I guess she was just just a beautiful person and it was so upsetting because I think it was about three three years ago now that she got herself clean she was she was off the street she was just about to start a job in in a needle exchange for the uh, for the city and then one evening she she went to bed and then had a heart attack so this is like at 45 years old he passed away and it's it's just something that really still it still hurts badly and the the second edition of my book is dedicated to her so the first passage the first page in the book is is about Margot it's just from Margot uh, so yeah I told Margot's story and she she knew that I told her story and it was you know I'd done videos and all sorts of things and it was covered in the Huffington Post and she, she'd read all this stuff and she was, she was so, so happy that, uh, that people could read the kind of riches to rags story and what the exploitation 
of particularly men, the way that men exploit these girls in that industry. Uh, and she wanted to tell that story because it, it you know, it's the Peter Norse of the world that are sat in the big mansions and she's the one on the street in 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 Miami uh, and I think it's it's just a real sad situation that many of these girls find themselves in that uh, they can't you know they're, they're, they're confronted with all this I guess at an early age, all this power, all this this sexual power, this, and then before long, I, it's just time. Time just catches up with them, and then before they know it, addiction takes hold, and they're on the street, and it's a vicious circle from there, and it's very difficult to get out of. But she had the she had the the balls to get herself and, and get herself clean. And it's such a tragedy that she was taken from us when, when she'd worked so hard to get to that point. So yeah, I mean, the in terms of what I do, the the relationships, I'm I'm falling in love with these people. I'm creating relationships with these people, and then the photographs become a, a kind of they're my way of saying goodbye. The the final piece. The camera never comes up. Can I take your photograph? That's never that's never an option. It's always once I've created a relationship, once I've spent a good amount of time with a person, it's always can I document this for for me? Can I can I take a photograph that's going to mean something for me? And this is what the photographs has all, have always been. They've never been a a contest to see who's the best photographer. They've never been a uh, a, a way of of creating something that's not authentic they've been a way for me to say goodbye to a relationship that could never last because of my life and because of their life it they've become a way for me to help organizations that help them whilst i'm whilst i'm not naive enough to think that i can't help them whilst i'm there which i do obviously i'm you know I, i've taken people to hospital I bought people food. I bought people clothes. I give I give people money, I just because they're going to go and use that and, and maybe buy some drugs. That's not my issue. That if that's what they need at that particular point, if that keeps them going on the street to earn money to pay for that, uh, then I'm I'm not I'm not judging. So yeah, over the years, I help on a micro level. But what the images also do, they help on a macro level. And because of the notoriety they've received, uh, they can help, and they and they do help organizations. Like I've worked with the Seattle's Gospel Mission extensively, and they have total use of my image, images free of charge, and they use them. They use them for all their advertising campaigns. We had, the, we had a big project in Seattle a few years ago and we projected the images onto the skyscrapers in the city to raise awareness and it, it did it was covered in the news it was covered on tv and the radio I remember doing a radio interview with the uh, CEO of the mission on Seattle radio when I was there and it created a real buzz and it it generated a lot of funds for for the mission 
And there's there's countless other charities I work with where the images are used. Uh, any exhibitions I have, I always donate a percentage to whenever there's anything sold, always the percentage goes to the uh, charities. And it's really, a, it's a, the images have become my way of saying goodbye. And they've also garnered a, a general popularity in, uh, because of, I guess it's the authenticity of what I do. It's based on real relationships and it's based on, it's not based on anything else. It, you know, it's not, I'm not going onto these homeless areas just to take a photo. It's, that, that's not the reason why I'm there. And I can't stress that enough. And it, it's when photographers ask me, how do you do this, Lee? I mean, how do you explain to somebody the way you feel? How do you teach somebody the way you feel? The photographs are a product of my whole life. They're a product of the experience in Rome. They're a, they're a product of the love I've felt in my life. They're a product of my own sense of loneliness. And unless you've experienced those things, I don't think you can really do what Lee Jeffries does. So now when I'm, I take a commission, for example, I still approach the commission with the same sense of love and authenticity that I would a homeless person. So I have to get to know the person. I have to, to be with the person first. I have to, I have to fall in love with them. I have to really connect with them spiritually. And otherwise it doesn't work. I mean, I've done stuff for the mission, the Seattle's mission, where they wanted me to photograph staff members. And it, it just didn't work. It just wasn't, there was no authenticity there. It was too staged. It was too, wasn't spontaneous enough. It wasn't, it didn't really, didn't work that way. So, but yeah, the images are, they help, they help on a, a macro level. And I think that's my mantra is, if you want to help homelessness, if you want to, to try and, contribute positively to the issue then do so on a macro level rather than a micro level yes you can give a few a few dollars or a few quid to to a homeless person sat in the street but it's the organizations like the mission that are there every day for these guys that go out every night and give them soup and a warm blanket these are the people that make a difference every single day these are this is the, the macro way to help. These are the people that can save lives, literally save lives, and they do. And when these, these homeless people are ready to come in, the, the mission is there with open arms. Come in, we, we've got a place for you. So, for example, Margot. If, when Margot was ready, there was someone in Miami, there's an organization in Miami waiting for her to take her in and take her through a program to to get her back to where she where she, she wanted to be. But they've got to want it. You know, these homeless people, are, they, they need to make that decision themselves. It comes to some, but it doesn't come to others. So you have a very unique lens where, like you said, you weren't self-confessed 
altruistic prior to this experience, then you find yourself within the homeless community. I think a, a lot of us, when we were younger, you know, the, the, the tendency is to to see homelessness almost like a nuisance, you know, and again, the what's wrong with you, get a job kind of mentality. And then you mature and you realize, okay, these are human beings and it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happened to you. So as you have these in-depth conversations, you connect to these people's souls. What were some of the common denominators you started seeing about some of these men and women's background that led them to this place of desperation? I mean, I don't think there's any commonality at all. I mean, I think the the, the the way these people end up on the street is just so diverse and for so many different reasons. Homelessness is a is a very complex uh, problem for for the people involved and for societies as a whole to deal with. Uh, Skid Row. A lot of a lot of the guys down on Skid Row. If you're if you're asking me for a common denominator, a lot of the guys are they always used to say, Lee, this is temporary. I'm only here, I'm just passing through. But then I'd go back two years later and they'd still be there. And then five years later, I'd they'd still be there. There's there's never there never seems to be a loss of hope to get back to where they want to where they think they should be but there's there's always seems to be a a disjoint to them getting there there's always seems to be a barrier that prevents them getting from just being from just passing through and i don't know what those reasons are uh and you know i can guess and but it's just the why the, the why these people end up there is is Margot, for example, she she was famous porn star, just drifted into uh, drugs, and then, then it took its took its toll. Many many guys just lose their jobs, breakdowns of relationships, find themselves lonely like I was, but they don't have an avenue like I did with photography to to vent the sense of loneliness. And then those guys turn to drink maybe, or which then turns once, once they're drinking, they can find themselves homeless pretty quickly. And then they get preyed on by the gangs that inhabit these places. So Skid Row is, it's just the drug problems endemic there. It's just, once you're in that situation, uh, it's very difficult to to break free, I guess. An analogy I talk about a lot is the preschool. You know, we're now basically toddler age. You look in a room of preschoolers, none of those children are dreaming of becoming a, a porn star. You know, none of those children are dreaming of becoming an addict, a homeless, you know, a gangbanger. So this is what really kind of irks me about the judgment element of a lot of people and their view of home homelessness, especially when a lot of these people visit holy places every Sunday, for example, and are reading kindness, compassion, acceptance, you know, community, and then come out and, you know, step over homeless people to get to their their car. But 
But what's worse than that, what's worse than that, James, is when these people go to places like Skid Row and then try and indo- indoctrinate their own sense of faith on the community. And I found that particularly guiling because uh, these people will go down and they won't, they'll go down with, with a carload of food and they won't give them the food until they've actually done a sermon or some kind of preach, preaching to them. And they'll make them sing in line uh, before the food is dished out. And that's just that's just craziness to me. I, I just don't understand that. But go on, sorry. No, I, and I agree with you, by the way. Actually, I was, uh, I was interested in a, uh, an organization that volunteers as firefighters in Africa, but the prerequisite is you have to go and spread Christianity while you're there. And I was like, oh, okay. So we're not actually doing it just purely out of the good of our hearts as a ulterior motive. So I, I kind of lost interest because for me personally, that wasn't what I want to do. I just wanted to take my skill set as an American responder and maybe help equip and train some people overseas. But with these paths, there are people that have very, very traumatic early lives and by chance, by mentorship, by, you know, whatever it is, they're able to navigate and still, you know, stay in their homes and hold down a good job and start a family, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some people that, that just don't, you know, they can't. And so what I see as a common denominator, and this is more through obviously the conversations, it's not like I'm constantly surrounded by the homeless, but that the, the, you know, the genesis, the, the origin story is trauma. You know, and in a society that um, prohibits the use of drugs and you will be thrown in jail if you are, you know, using drugs, you know, you look at the way our system's set up, it is not designed to raise people up that are hurt, that have fallen. You know, you go to prison, there's not, you know, we don't have a great recidivism rate in the UK and America. Our prisoners don't come out rehabilitated most of the time. They usually come out, you know, worse than they went in a lot of times. You know, they can access drugs. They may become more violent when they when they leave. They're kind of out the back door. And it's like, all right, well, good luck. And that's, a you know, an easy road to homelessness as well. So what I see coming from a simply kindness and compassion lens is a lot of these people, if we reach them in time, as you said, are trying to navigate, but no one's given them the map. No one's mm-hmm. actually held their hand and say, let me help you, you know? Okay. So you look at some of these other countries that do very well in that area. There are, there are uh, social programs that are set up and we look at that as like, oh, handouts, you know, people are just going to want more. You're always going to get the people that want more with the very poor and the very rich. You know, we have a whole spectrum of people that are very selfish, but do you just shut the program down so no one has it? Or do you go, well, look, we're always going to have the people that abuse the system, but... of the homeless population will actually benefit from these programs. So that's, that's what I see when I, you know, when I do get to speak to some of these people, some of the people on the, on the show were homeless and now they're firefighters or, you know, all kinds of other professions, but it was the trauma. It was that, that early childhood experience that really was the genesis. And if no one, kind of entered their life that had a positive effect a lot of these people just go further and further and further down so i mean it goes back to what i was saying earlier i mean i think we we're a product of our childhood and we we develop uh, our lives develop based on based on things that have happened to us and you know i i don't i don't profess to be an expert by any means in in 
in in this subject. But I just know from my own sense, my own life, my own story, that everything when I look back now at 52 years old, everything that uh, that has that has happened to me has definitely been influenced by the first 18 years of my life. Uh, the, the photographs that are taken that and the the, the homeless people and me, I'm not digging into their trauma. This is not what I'm trying to do. This is, I'm connecting on a, on a, just a human level. It's just, a, it's just two human beings connecting that wouldn't, wouldn't ordinarily connect. Now there's a stigma, a stigma with homelessness and it, it, to, to 90% of the population, they're frightening. And, they're frightening because they, a lot of them manifest their homelessness with the trauma that they, they feel and have felt. So whether that's with uh, drug use or with uh, psychiatric problems, uh, places like Skid, Skid Row are notorious, notoriously dangerous to the normal person. Yes, they are dangerous places, and the, you know they, there are gangs and all sorts of things. But you go there as a human being, and you know I used to walk there with a camera strapped to my shoulder, and I had no trouble whatsoever over ten year ten years of going there. It just shows that if you you go to these people and you you walk towards these people instead of keeping a distance between them, you give them a path, like you said give them a, a pathway to a connection instead of being frightened of the person, then it, it, it's just all about human beings connecting. It, it, it is connecting on a human level. And once that connection is made, then beautiful things can happen. Progress can be made. Uh, and this is why the, I support the charities so much because they're the guys that move forward towards these people. They're the they're the the connection. They're the link between. They're their only link. <laughs> when it comes down to it, they are the only link that they've got. Because the family, the families aren't there for them. You don't get a thousand Lee Jeffries going down into Skid Row. And making a difference. I'm just one man. I can only do what I do. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, trauma is yes, it's a it's a big element of of why people find themselves there. But we need to, as as non homeless people and and just ordinary people, we perhaps just need to look back at our lives and and take a more compassionate view. Absolutely. Well, you spoke about human connection, something that I've talked about on here. It's amazing how you can connect even as we are now. So we're what, two and a half thousand miles away from each other. But with the beautiful side of technology, some of these deep conversations, you know, you really are able to to connect with someone else's soul. And there's many, many interviews that I've stayed good friends with people that came on. One of those people was Josh Brolin, who's a mutual friend now. So 
you've started, you know, the, the, the photography side, you're now, you know, publishing your art. Talk to me about how you met Josh and that interaction. I can't even remember how I met Josh. That was, uh, honest, honest, James, I just cannot remember how, I, how, how we met. It was, it was a number of years ago. And I think he just, he just followed me on Instagram. And I was obviously flattered that Josh had followed me and he just kind of looked at some of my images. And I think I think I sent him a message and then to my to my astonishment, he sent me one back. And I didn't really expect anything back. And then we just started to have a conversation and uh, we just seemed to connect. He, he seemed to understand the conversation that we've had today he seemed to understand me without actually having the conversation. So he, it was almost like he knew me. And then when I explained and, you know, I'd gone into the conversation that we've had, and then that's when he really, he, he was a Lee Jeffries fan. And I guess you're like, if you, if, if he, he really understood the person. Uh, and yeah, he's just been so, I mean, the guy is just a beautiful man. I, I can't expect, he goes out of his way to help people. He walks towards people, not away from people. He's not afraid to use his influence for the common good. Uh, even if he takes shit for it sometimes, he'll still, he's, he's a man of principle. He's a man of love, and uh, every time I I look at him and Catherine when he posts pictures together, it just it's that that relationship, the way she holds him, the way he loves her, it's it's me, it, it's it's me back fifteen years ago, it's me that be do anything, go anywhere, kind of love. So I look at it with fondness, and I look at it with a sense of hope. I look at it and think, yeah, that it, it could happen to me again. It could really, this, it could work. So uh, I think that's what we all aim for. I mean, when I first looked at Josh's Instagram, it was about him and Catherine. It was, it was, and I felt it. I didn't, I didn't look at it because it's Josh Brolin, the movie star. I was looking at it because he found that, that thing that I was looking, I was searching for, that thing that was driving me out onto the street. He found that thing that I'm looking into strangers' eyes for. And I think that's that's how I connected with him. And that's how we started to talk. And that's how, you know, I'd send him a piece and he would love the piece. And then eventually he he agreed to to write the foreword for my book. And he's done so many other things subsequently. It's just but the piece he wrote for the book is just beautiful. It's just, I couldn't have asked for anything more pertinent. And Josh, I tell him all the time, every time I speak to him, I said, yeah, I always say to him, I owe you so much. And this, it's what you've done for me, I just cannot repay. Uh, and you've done it out of the goodness of your heart. And I will forever be grateful and I always will. And Josh, if you listen to this, I love you, man. And you're the absolute best. He really is. And, uh, you know, we 
did this first interview and like I said kind of carried on talking became friends he wrote the forward for my book as well and again I always tell people the most embarrassing thing is after the forward we're with Josh's beautiful writing, then you have to read my writing. <laughs> and on the audiobook, you have this, you know, Hollywood voice narrating the forward, and then you have my squeaky English voice <laughs> doing the rest of it. But there's some people to understand. Here's the good news for everyone listening. He has finally written a book that he's been wanting to write for a long time, and he just told me that he's he's sold it. It's it's going to come out. So uh oh, um, people, you know, the average person now will get to really experience what you and I have seen with the with the wordsmith that he is. I mean, yes, he was in the Goonies when we were young and that was cool. And and you know, he actually came on during what they called the Summer of Brolin, which was the uh Avengers movie and Deadpool two and a thousand yeah, other things yeah. that he had going on and still came on the Behind the Shield podcast with this firefighter that had a tiny audience. But I am so excited for that side of him. I and mean, he was a volunteer firefighter when he was younger, when he was in Hollywood. Um, you know, but his written word is it's incredible. And it's the kind of thing that I would never try and emulate, but he has his own unique lens on the world through art, through word, and through his acting. It feels on a human level. He his writing is he's human. It's based on experience. Uh, and it's based on love and it's based on, you know, his life. And I think he did mention that he was doing the book. So I, I didn't realize it was it was complete. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure I'm going to be buying my copy and I'm sure it'll be a bestseller. So it's wonderful, wonderful to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to get into some of the other, you know, I hate the word celebrity, but, you know, well-known people that you just work with. But prior to that, you know, you've talked about this loneliness. You've talked about the pursuit of that, that love that you felt so deeply with the woman in L.A. You've got this, uh, this trauma from early life. Kind of when did that manifest in your adult kind of timeline? Uh, it wasn't until my sense of loneliness, really. I mean, what drove me artistically wasn't until I met the person. It was that love. It was feeling a love that I'd never felt before in my life. And then suddenly being without that love. Uh, and then the periods where we were apart. So I guess, how old was I? Uh, 35, 34. So it took that long because for 30 years of my life, it was all about me. It was all about me being an accountant, it was all about me being my uncle. I was going to be nothing other than my uncle, and I was going to have my own accountancy practice, and I was going to drink pims in the summer, and uh, that was me. That was my life mapped out. Then I met this person, and she had a, a compassion for other people, and we are the product of the people we meet as well. I mean. We, everyone we've met in our life always leaves a part of them with us. And her part that she's left for me is it significantly shaped the rest of my life. And uh, yeah, it was about 34, 35 when things changed and that sense of loneliness and that sense of contemplation of my childhood really started to happen i mean the contemplation of of the trauma of my childhood and and the and the, the toing and throwing is not 
I think the older you get and the less runway you have in front of you, the more you tend to reflect on the runway that you've you've just left behind. I think that's a natural thing for for a man, a, a person, a, a human being to to contemplate. You know, in your twenties and thirties, that path is just stretched stretched out before you, and you don't even think about what's happened. You don't think about trauma because you're too concentrated on the here and now. Uh, which is perhaps why Josh has written a book now and not 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It takes time for these things to develop, simmer, uh, and really to, to create something beautiful is not something that that happens overnight. So the impatient student photographer that contacts me now and wants it there and then, I just smile and just think, you have to wait, you have to be patient, you have to work a lifetime to get truly, truly to a position where you're producing something that's that's meaningful and authentic. So with your own journey, where was the the lowest place that you found yourself in, in those years after? And then what were some of the tools aside from photography that you used to bring yourself back up? Oh, gosh, that's a difficult question. It's I I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I felt any lower than I felt when I'm I'm out on the street, but I'm at my happiest. So when I'm out on the street and I'm looking into strangers' eyes, I cannot explain that sense of loneliness and how empty I feel and how how much uh, personal relief I feel when I feel that emotion in someone else it's almost like an antidote an immediate antidote uh so it's not the photography as such that's that's a tool to yes that's that's a way of communicating and uh documenting documenting the the actual process but the, the tool that I'm using is is this this sense of loneliness, this this friend that kind of walks with me every single day and still does. Uh, and it becomes I don't know. It, it's, loneliness is so hard to explain. But sometimes I'll sit and listen to classical music just in tears in a complete state of, of loneliness, but never be happier. Does that make sense? Yes, it's the kind of paradox of light and dark. Yeah, it, it just, I can sit there and, and just be in tears, sat on my own in the dark, and, but revel in the, in the sadness. I, to, 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 to even think about it and, and, and to, I can't even explain why. 
I've never even thought to explain why. It's just, just something I feel. Uh, and maybe it's it's those those times that are my mechanism to get through, to to get th- just to just to get through the day, just to feel that sadness and feel the elation of that sadness, and then that gets me through another evening. I mean, Christmases and New Year's are, are, are completely awful for me. It's just, uh, I hate them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, New Year's is just terrible. Uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, there's no particular mechanism. It's just a, it's just a process of, of life and just, and just absorbing and just, and just and just being and just rolling with it and and accepting the fact that. This this sense of loneliness that that I felt since I was a kid, this sense of abandonment, this sense of no one's going to love me is is something that's always going to be part of my life. It's not something that's just going to go away. Uh, I guess I've just learned to to walk with it as it walks with me. It's become it's become a friend. Well, you mentioned that you were a father now. So yeah. was there a relationship? that you thought was the thing and then it wasn't the thing? Yes, I guess there was, but it was just those things happen, don't they? It's just not something that uh, you were. Uh, relationships are so hard to explain. It's just they felt on such different. I mean, you're married now, yeah? Are you? Yeah, so I've been divorced and married again. So yeah, I've I've been through the lows and the highs. And my second marriage is absolutely what we're talking about. It's it's the the soulmate, hands down. But uh, the first marriage, I had my son, so I've got no regrets. The marriage itself wasn't great, but I got a beautiful little boy. So again, it kind no, of my little. I mean, my little girl's everything to me. My uh, you see, if you see my Instagram posts, I I leave little notes for her. You know when she needs them. So I, I just leave a little message. So one day in a life when, you know, maybe I'm gone and my Instagram is still there, she can go to those messages and she'll read them and she'll just think, you know, daddy, daddy was, daddy was good. He was a good man. He was a good daddy. And he left me these notes. And so I just leave, leave one every now and again, just to, just so it's there. So yeah, she's she's my world. I mean, if it wasn't, I mean, that's another mechanism. That's another way I cope. It's just, uh, which will bring us on to the Metallica thing, I guess. It's, you know, she's 10 now. So for 10 years of my life, I've thrown myself into her as well. So it's, it's just been about, it's been about just living, just, the photography i've not done many photography projects in the last 10 years but uh a lot of it came early early before francesca so it's to cope i guess i've just thrown myself into to bringing her up and just watching her grow and just being being the best dad i can be just be be the dad that i never had you know my dad was there saturday but i don't have a relationship with him now it's not like he wants a relationship with me. It's just, and I don't want that with my daughter. I want my daughter to be a daddy's girl, be, yeah, look at daddy and 
know that he's a, he's he's a rock. He's there, uh, and I love her with all my bones. She's just the best thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I can relate. Like I said, I've got I got one as well. He's almost sixteen, so a little bit older. But uh, yeah, I mean that's that's where ninety nine percent of my soul has been invested into for the last sixteen years. So I can relate one hundred percent. Totally. And when you're a parent, you just know. There's just no love like it. You can't explain it. You can't you can't articulate it. You can't do anything other than just say it's there. It's a constant. Absolutely. It's the most beautiful love you've ever felt in your life. 100%. It's a different kind of love. It's a different, you know, it's not that, I mean, it is that go anywhere, be anywhere, but it was, you know, when you, when you, when you in, fall in love with a person and you just get on a plane just to be with them, how exciting is that? How how alive do you feel when that happens? And yeah, I mean, maybe one day. <laughs> I believe, I really do. Like I said, it took me, I mean, I've been married uh, with my, my wife now for just over 10 years. So I was a little younger than you, but um, my sister, for example, she just met the love of her life. I think it's been three maybe four years ago so she is four years younger than me so she would be oh my goodness making myself do math now 45 so 41 and they had a little boy when she was 42 i think 42 or 43 and then they're trying for one more so you know when we we have this timeline that we're told oh you should have a you know married by this age and kids done by this age you know, I mean, Josh, perfect example. He's still knocking out babies in his 50s. So, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, man, isn't he? he's, uh, he's older than me and he's still knocking out babies. <laughs> exactly. So I, I, I believe, you know, that incurable romantic uh, that you are, that that person is out there because I've lived it. I've, I've been with some some great people. You know, my last one definitely was a lesson in a lot of things that I didn't want in a relationship and my current one is is phenomenal and it's not you know a Disney movie we we argue sometimes and we knock heads occasionally but that is my soulmate hands down so having been through the journey that I've been through you know I I always hope that someone will believe enough to open their heart for the right one to come along because when they do it is phenomenal you know they literally you know yeah it's it's it's, it was that love at first sight, pretty much, with her. And, you know, 10 plus years later, we're still like two school kids. You know, my heart still skips a beat when I'm in a store and I come around the corner and see her. Amazing. So, so amazing. Oh, good for you too. <laughs> yeah. So, so I believe, so Lee. I believe. That's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you, you touched on Metallica. So let's kind of go down that road. Now you. Metallica, the boys. What a. What a buzz this has been. Uh, last October, out of the blue, I get a, a phone call from New York. So I, I pick my phone up and it's New York calling. And I thought, who the hell's calling me from New York? Nobody calls me from New York. So I didn't answer the phone. I thought, I'm not answering. <laughs> and within two minutes, I'd had an email from Mark Reiter, who is the manager of Metallica from headquarters. In, he must have been, I think he lives in New York. Anyway, he says says on the email, Lee, uh, we love your work. We're interested in, in exploring the possibility of you doing some portraits of the band. Would you kindly get back to me? <laughs> I, nearly, I nearly fell off my chair. I thought, <laughs> no way. This is, this is a wind-up. This, this is not happening. 
And uh, but I saw excited. I couldn't couldn't contain myself. So I I called him straight back, and yeah, he he said we're we're doing a new album, and we'd like and the and the and the guys would like particularly for you to do the do the portraits. Uh, you are their number one choice. I said, really? Yeah, he said, of all the people that have been put forward, the guys love your work the most. I went, oh, right, okay. Uh, I didn't take much convincing. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it, but I, could I have a chat with you? He said, I'll put you in touch with the creative director and you can have a chat through what what's required. So uh, he did. He put me in touch with... Uh, the creative guy and David, he called he called me uh, from San Francisco, and we had a over the over the next two or three days we had something like five or six conversations, and each one of those conversations I stressed to him that yes I would take the job, but only on one condition that the guys would have to do it the way I do it. You know I'm not going to turn up with a big entourage. It's just me, my camera, uh, and we go out on the street and we have a walk and we we get to know each other. But I want them to go on the street where in a place that I'm comfortable with, that where I know the light, where I know the people, where I know the community. So, you know, if I'm going to photograph these guys in San Francisco or LA, it has to be, you know, in the you know in the tenderloin in San Francisco. It has to be in. Uh, outside in LA it doesn't matter where it was in LA but it, the tenderloin was it was that was always my request so David came back to me and said yes the guys have got no problem with that they'll work with you I mean this is Metallica this is like the biggest band on the on the planet and they want to do it my way they're not questioning I mean what does that say about the guys what does that say about how much they trusted me how much they believed in what I did and how much they felt from my images i mean it's just an amazing sense of trust they placed with me it was just incredible so we went on to david with anyone went on to uh, talk about time frames <laughs> this is this is the end of october so i had to be there beginning of november and i had to turn the images around within a week so the designers could have it for the the album. I had no idea whereabouts the, on the on the album this, these images were going to be. They just said they were going to do portraits. I had no kind of visualization on how they were going to be used. David just said to me, "Lee, just do do what you do." And he knew full well how he was going to use them, but he just he just wanted me to do what I do and not be constrained in any particular way. Which was great because that worked. Because, like I said before in the conversation, that when you when I'm directed, it's not really doesn't really work. So I flew to LA, and the first guy I met was Rob, and we 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 shot in LA the the, morning, the the following morning. So I got to LA. I think it was on a Wednesday night. No, Tuesday. I, I forget which night. Anyway, I got I got to LA. Spent the night in the hotel, didn't sleep one bit. I had jet lag like you wouldn't believe. And I was just looking at the ceiling all evening, all night, not, not, not a single minute of sleep. So I get up, 
and I don't usually eat breakfast and I had to eat breakfast that morning otherwise I'd never survived and I met Rob and uh, he was he was on his way from uh, I think Santa Monica way and it was like pouring down in in Beverly Hills where I was and I was so worried about the light and Rob knew that I was worried about the light because I, I conveyed that to David on the conversation earlier we had that morning. And Rob's phoning me saying, Lee, we can always come back here when I pick you up. So this is like, you know, Rob, bass player for Metallica, helping me to get the shoot done. He was just totally going out of his way. Anyway, he ended up turning up and just the clouds broke and it was great. And there was enough light and we did the shoot. And I was so nervous. And it before I took the job, I just thought, I'm going to take this job and just see if I can do it. I'm not, I'll probably not be able to do it. I'll probably not produce something that they they like. But I'm going to go, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone and I'm just going to do it anyway. If they don't like it, that's it. Uh, what I've not lost anything. They may have lost some time, but... Uh, I guess they were willing to take that risk. So after that first shoot with Rob, I knew I was killing it. I absolutely knew. I, the images I have of Rob are, are just sensational. And I've got, I've got more. I just can't use them at the minute. Uh, and then that afternoon, I flew to San Francisco and then got settled in the hotel. And the hotel they put me up in, in San Francisco, it was just beautiful. It was just amazing. I just felt like a complete rock star. It was just, <laughs> I had a big suite. It was just, it was just epic. And the night I was, the night I arrived, uh, I was due to uh, meet Lars in the morning. And the night, the night I was in the hotel, Lars called me and he was so, he was kind of, he was probing me and he was kind of nervous about what was going to happen. And you could tell that he was, he was driving this thing. He was, he was the artistic uh, driving force behind getting me to do this job. So he was really inquisitive on how it would go. And he was super friendly, but super encouraging. He wanted it to work and he would do anything for it to work. So I met him in the morning, we got into a car and we drove to, drove around and then I, I found a spot where the, the light was beautiful and we got out of the car and we just took some photos and then we had a walk and then we took some photos in some other places. Then we had a walk and a coffee and it was just like what I do on the street. It was just like being my normal Lee Jeffries street photographer self. You know, he, he could have been a rock star. He could have been a homeless person. In effect, these guys were just normal people. They were, you know, you think of Metallica as some kind of gods, but they're, they're beautiful, normal, responsive human beings that that feel like we do, that that, that love like we do, that, that have all the same emotions that we do. And it's it was just amazing to connect with him in that way and, and to connect with the other guys. Rob was... Uh, Kirk was, uh, no, it was James that afternoon after Lars. And James was just, he was amazing. I can't, he was just so cool to me. Uh, and subsequently, all the guys have been great, but I'll go on to that. 
And then the last one, the next day was Kirk. So I got all the shots and had to get back. I wanted to stay in LA a bit longer, but I had to, I had to get back and, uh, to sort the images out, to actually create the images and, and get them over to them. So I, I said to David, the design guy, that I'm going to give you four images and these are my recommendations. I'd prefer if you make the, these, make it the suggestions to the, to the guy that these are my recommendations. So he, he says to the, he, he takes the images and he, he goes in the meeting with the four guys and the first thing James says, before David said anything, are these the recommendations of Lee? And David said, yes, they are. And he said, that's good enough for me. And that was it. Passed. They were, that was, that was all that was required. So they, I mean, there was a few toing and froing on some of the images, but, you know, it was, they loved them. And I loved them. And I think what I produced was authentic it tells a story. It tells the story that they wanted wanted to tell. 72 seasons, it's about, the album itself is about, you know, the first years of our childhood and how it forms us and our own sense of vulnerability and humanness. And I think that's what they wanted to portray. And I think that's what they do. It, 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 it tells a story of where they've been, where they are now. And... David knew exactly what he was going to get from me. And the way it appears in the album is just, it's just stunning the way that the whole, it was really the synergy of the whole meeting was just incredible. And just to re-emphasize that point, I sent James a copy of my book at Christmas. Uh, and I, on the signature page, I just wrote a passage without darkness. There is no light. And and this was just something that I felt within, you know, within me. That was just something. So he gets the book at Christmas and then sends me a text message. He said, Lee, I've just opened the book and it, it it's it's almost like a God moment. So I sent a reply, what do you mean? And he said, well, those are the lyrics from one of the songs on the album. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Yeah, he said, Chasing Light is is those are the lyrics and I hadn't got a clue. I and mean, this is just me just trying to write something nice in the, in the signature page. So it, the whole experience has been kind of really a, a beautiful synergy. And it's almost like it was meant to be. It was just, it's like one of those things in life that I didn't chase. They came to me. Uh, obviously they knew what they wanted, but, uh, it's fit together so well and the images are so beautiful. And then when the tour started, they had me out in Paris. So that was the first two concerts that I did in Paris. And it was the first time I did concert photography. And again, it was, so when I got back from doing the, the, the album portraits, what the biggest take that I got from doing it was one, always answer your phone, never don't answer your phone. And then two is I'm actually capable of doing this kind of stuff. It really, it really gave me a sense of, wow, Lee, you can do this and you, you're killing it. And it, it, it is actually, it's beautiful work. 
and all the responses to the to the images since the album come out have been yeah you know, there's some negative but there's there's always some idiot that's just going to say for the sake of it just uh, internet warriors and but the the feedback that I get is that the images are really well received and that it's just you know when someone says sends you an email and say these are the best images of the band that have ever been shot then you think to yourself wow I can do this. I I I I am capable of doing this, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. And then to have me out in Paris and do the concert photography and, and just be around and be on the inside of the rail and just get all that inside access and be talking to James and Lars when they first saw me for them to come up to me and hug me and and really mean it. And to the point now where. I'm going to Sweden next week to do the, the concert in Gothenburg, the both concert. And then I'm fingers crossed I'm going to be doing all four venues in August in the States. So I'm going to take the whole of August and just be a Metallica Metallica photographer. <laughs> what what are the four cities here? Uh New York, and then there's Montreal. And then Texas, and then LA, and they go on to Arizona in September. But it, I, I don't think I'll be able to take that much time off. <laughs> still an accountant, so I've still got to get that work done. So I'm going to take the whole of August and just do those. There's two concerts in each venue, so it's it's no repeats. So it's like they say there's no repeats. So the set list is completely different each night, and yeah. So that's eight concerts. So, and just just to be there, just to be on the inside and just to be part of, it's addictive. It's so addictive, James. It's just, what a buzz I get. It's, I'm alive. I'm creatively at the best I've ever been for years. It's ignited a sense of purpose. It's ignited uh, just just something inside me that says, right, let's go again. Let's go again. And, and it's just, I just want to get to this, this Swedish concert and just kill it again. And I mean, I've got so many images that are, are in the bank that I just can't release yet because we just don't know what we're doing with them. And it's just, it's just evolving as it goes. And it, it's a really great process. And uh, I'm just, there isn't a day that I'm not, I don't think to myself, I am so blessed to be in this position. How lucky am I? And I, I honestly feel I am lucky. I honestly feel incredibly fortunate to, to be in a position where thousands of photographers would kill to be to be in that same situation. And suddenly, little old me from Bolton finds myself following Metallica around on the world tour. How cool is that? It's amazing. It's funny. I saw some of the videos of uh, the behind the scenes with James Hetfield smoking a cigar, about to go on, you know, and you were there right, right next to him. What's really striking, though, to me, is you start with these incredible pictures of human beings that happen to be homeless, some of whom addiction is in their, their story. Then you find yourself working with human beings that happen to be some of the biggest rock stars on the planet, who addiction is also part of their story. 
You know what yeah. I mean? So it goes back to that mentorship and that who was there to raise you up and, you know, were you able to pour yourself into a guitar or a bass or, you know, your vocals. Um, and, you know, there, but, but by the grace of God go I, they go back to that preschool full of kids. Some of them became Metallica. Some of them died in a yes. dumpster. You know what I mean? And this is what I see as a first responder is human beings, what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. So the the contrast between the socioeconomic status of some of the people on the street and, and Metallica is is night and day, but the humanity that you capture in your pictures shows the commonality between all these men and women that you got on film. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the the, the synergy. That's why it works so well. I mean I'm the I'm the communicator of that humanness i guess and i think that's the thing that's coming across in the images that i'm shooting is they're they're not like anything they've had before they're they're so human in their orientation and their approach which is why we're still kind of thinking on on the which way we're, we're going to go with the way that i i do this so it's yeah, I mean, for James, for James to say it's a godlike moment, I think he rec he recognizes that fact too. He recognizes what you, exactly what you've just said. He sees, and I, I know, particularly James and Lars, seeing my work, that humanness and that 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 tactile element of getting back the band getting back to the basics and not being a band. I'm the, the avenue to get in there from a, from a visual perspective, if you like. And I think, you know, the portraits that I've shot and, you know, photographs I'm shooting go, go some way to doing that. No, absolutely. Which is why it's moved, you know, Josh Brolin, again 3000 miles away via social media and it's why you know i i forget exactly how the connection was made if he shared one of yours and then i started following but obviously you and i connected and we spoke a while ago and here we are doing the interview which is phenomenal we're doing this audio only so some people are going to be familiar with your work some aren't so obviously we'll get to your social media stuff but you have two beautiful books um, lost angels and homeless so firstly talk to people about where they can find the books purchase the books and, and find your other work online well the the books themselves the the first uh book lost angels was was sold out uh oh years ago so lost angels is is complete i don't even have a copy of that the only book available now is portraits and that's available for my website just google lee jeffries and Lee Jeffries Portraits, and you'll find my my book available there. It's a deeply human book. It's an emotional book. It's become more to the people that own it. It's become more than a, more than a book. It's become a a reference for their own sense of humanity, their own lives. It becomes you relate to the book in a deeply personal way. The people in the in the book remind you of people in your own life. The stories are deeply touching. Uh, the foreword written by Josh, and it's just a beautiful thing to own. It's a beautifully human thing to own. Uh, 
and I would encourage you to to just take a look. And what's the website for people to find that? www.lee-jeffries.co.uk Beautiful. Well, that is your book. I'd love to throw some quick closing questions at you, if that's okay. Oh, ouch. <laughs> so first, is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh, I'm not really... I'm not really a reader in that in, in in that respect. So I don't kind of I don't read a lot of books. I'm not that way. I've never been that way. I guess uh I'm a visual person. And for me growing up, and I used to escape into the movies, which is why I guess a lot of my images, well, my images, my photographs are cinematic. They are a cinematic experience in a single frame. So I'm particularly, if I was going to, I'm not going to recommend a book, but I can recommend movies that, that move me and, you know, a particular movie or genre that moves me. I the Malik, Terence Malik, Malik movies. Now I've been fortunate enough to work with Terence a few years ago. He sent me a camera and I did some footage for his movie, The Voyage of Time. And his movies are just, just embody everything about humanity that I believe in. I mean, you look at the the movie uh, To the Wonder, a love story. It, it seems to, that movie seems to describe my life <laughs> and the way I view things. It's exactly, it's, it, it, the Rome experience, the, the love, it, it's just, it's just a beautiful movie. So the, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you on social media, what do you do to decompress? Printing. I, to see my images in print is amazing for me. It's just the most gratifying uh, process to actually take an image, shoot an image, and then print it yourself and sit there and just contemplate the image in front of you. So when I've gone through the whole process, I can just sit there and just relax and just, wow, I did that. That's just, and have it there in front of me. And that's Metallica, I'm assuming? That's Metallica, yeah. That's Stade de France. So for me to be able to sit there and just, just ponder that I was capable of doing something like that. Incredibly therapeutic, incredibly relaxing. And that's how I, I was spending my time and then spending time with my daughter. Just been to, just been to Disney. So spending time in, with my daughter at Disney. I love, I love being there with her. Was that Euro Disney you were at? No, Orlando. Oh, really? You were just here? I'm yeah. like an hour from Orlando here. Are you? Oh, wow. Yeah. You could have done face to face. <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, the guy's name from Seattle's Gospel Mission, Jeff. Okay, brilliant. Uh, he was the CEO of Seattle's Gospel Mission. And he's the guy who moves towards people. He is... 
he taught me that expression, move towards rather than move away. Uh, when I first became involved with the mission, he was the one that took the chance. He was the one that wanted, that embraced what I did. And when you go through your life as an artist and as a photographer, not many people are willing to take chances on you and you need those people. So you need the people like Josh Brolin. Uh, you need the people like Barbara in Italy that took a chance on me to when I had my exhibit in Milan. Uh, you need the people like Giovanni who had who gave me my first exhibition in in Rome. And you need the people like like Jeff, the CEO of the ex CEO of Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, who see you and see your work for what it is on a human level. And Jeff is the most human person that I've ever met. And he did, you know, he helped me with some of the writing in the book. And if I, if anybody in the world should come on and talk to first responders about their experience of pain and trauma, Jeff's seen it all. He's, he's been there. He's been on the front line for years and incredibly compassionate man, incredibly beautiful man. And yeah, he'd be my recommendation. Beautiful. Well, if you're able to help me connect, I would love to get him on. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Fantastic. All right. Well, then the very last question, if people want to follow you on social media or reach out to you that way, where are the best places to find you? Uh, most of my social media stuff is on Instagram. So you'll find me at Lee underscore Jeffries. Uh, same on Facebook, Lee Jeffries Photographer. Uh, Twitter, Lee underscore Jeffries. Uh, I think those are the main three. I've not quite got into TikTok yet. I don't think you see me dancing. Uh, it's not it's not my kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, the Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, they're my main social outlets. Brilliant. Well, Lee, I want to say thank you so much. It's been, uh, as you said, we've, we've gone back and forth with, with interviews for a few years, but it's never solidified. We finally sat down today, but the, I think the universe is crazy when, when interviews finally pan out, it's always because they're supposed to. And here you are now on the back end of the Metallica experience as well. Another entire, you know, chapter to discuss, but you know, leading us through your own kind of journey and, and trying to overcome some of the trauma and how that's mirrored in some of the men and women, these beautiful human beings that we we see living on our streets. And then, you know, the other side of that with the musicians that you've got to work with, it's been an amazing conversation. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, James. It's just been an honor to do the interview and I'm glad we could get together and, and sort this out. And uh, I hope all the listeners get something from it and you know it's i think the moral of my story is be be human be compassionate and do things that that, that test you do things and and take take that leap of faith and wonderful things happen